1 Samuel 24, beginning at verse 16. So it was, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Father God, we thank you for this, your word. It is our glory to continue to worship you, to revel in your word, and we pray that you would sanctify us through your word. Your word is truth, and we love it. So, Father, we pray for your continued presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, last week we saw the subtle difference between pursuing God in everything and pursuing everything as a substitute for God. And we as Christians can do this so easily. And what we're going to do today is we're going to dig a little bit deeper and see that this difference between Saul and David can be seen even in spiritual things like singing and worship and prayer and even today's topic, uh, repentance. Uh, we can pursue repentance from two totally different perspectives. Now in this chapter, God gives Saul an amazing opportunity to repent and to be restored to usefulness. Now I'm blown away with how patient and kind God has been to Saul over and over in these last chapters, and how patient and kind God is with me and, and with each one of us. He's given Saul opportunity after opportunity to repent, and Saul keeps blowing it. He keeps blowing it. In this passage, basically what Saul says is, I'm sorry, I did wrong. But as we're going to see, that's not enough. And before I get to that, I just want to comment on God's faithfulness in uh, bringing into Saul's life a David who was willing to rebuke Saul over his sin. Now, you may not consider the rebukes of your friends to be uh, a blessing, but it really is. The scripture says that uh, you ought to treasure a friend who is willing to bring those faithful rebukes and uh, wounds into your life. But uh, Saul... Uh, for the most part, did not see it that way. Here he's got an inkling. He's got a little bit of an inkling of the direction that he should go, but he doesn't take it. He doesn't step down from the throne, which is what God had called him uh, to do. But David does bring this rebuke faithfully into his life, and even his, his lifestyle is a rebuke. The very way in which he lives is a rebuke to Saul. But certainly, uh, last few verses that we looked at, uh, David's <laughs> words were so bold in rebuking Saul. Now, let me, let me quickly go through those. Verse 11, he accused Saul of hunting him down like an innocent man. And actually, before that, he bows to the ground, doesn't he? He honors Saul. He shows in his life a humility that's lacking in Saul. In verse 12, David called down God's curses on Saul, but he says, I'm not going to fight you. That's in God's hands. 
I am not going to do it at all. And that too serves as a contrast between those two men in terms of character. In verse 13, he warns Saul that without God's grace, all Saul can produce is wickedness. In verse 14, he models humility again. In verse 15, he confronts Saul over his sins. And so he very, very clearly exposes Saul's sins so that the whole world can see that. And by the way, God can do this in our lives as well. Uh, If we do not have the humility to repent of our sins right away, God says, okay, it's more than just repentance. I've got to deal with your pride as well. I'm going to expose your sins far more broadly than I would have if you had repented right away. I have learned long ago it just does not pay to put off confession of our sins. Remember uh, way, way back in earlier chapters, God told, uh, through Samuel, told Saul, be sure your sins will find you out. You maybe heard of the story of the American ship, the Nancy. Actually, I don't know if it was an American ship, but the captain was an American. It was um, 1799. The ship was a smuggler ship bringing contraband into various ports. And if you're looking for the Americans to be the hero, uh, no, we've got a different direction that we're going with the story. But anyway, the Nancy was captured by the uh, uh, British warship, the Sparrow, and was brought into Kingston, Jamaica. And you need to understand that back in those days that uh, commanders and captains many times would take prized ships, usually because they were pirate ships or smuggling ships, And if they could prove in court that these people were engaged in international crime, uh, they could have the whole ship. So they enriched their pockets through this. So anyway, Commander Wiley brings uh, the whole ship into Kingston, Jamaica, uh, brings charges against Captain Briggs. He's the American captain in the court. And Captain Briggs immediately brings uh, a counter Uh, claim in court and uh, wants the court to dismiss it with costs. Now, it doesn't look, because they they lacked evidence, doesn't look like Wiley is going to win this case. So not only is he not going to get the prize ship, he's going to be out a lot of money that uh, was lost by Captain Briggs. But something very strange happened. Two days after the capture, a friend of uh, Commander Wiley, a guy by the name of Lieutenant Michael Fitton, arrived in that port And uh, he wanted Captain Wiley to uh, dine with him, sent for him for breakfast. Well, that morning, he saw this giant shark that was kept swimming around the ship. And just on a whim, he harpooned it. And uh, they hauled this uh, shark onto the boat. And as they gutted it, they found a whole wad of papers tied up with a string. And they showed it to Captain, uh, I mean, to Lieutenant uh, Fitton, uh, who was uh, on this, uh, this um, uh, second ship that came in, and he looks at it and he says, whoa, this is very recent. This is from the ship, the Nancy. Well, Captain Wiley had just come in since the, uh, the shark meat was fresh. He served him some shark for breakfast, and he says, I got this amazing find. I've got papers from the Nancy. Cap- uh, Commander Wiley said, well, that's impossible. I sealed the ship myself. I watched the captain coming up from downstairs. He wouldn't have even had time to throw away any papers. I've got his papers. And he said, well, I don't know. Just come take a look. So they're going over to the shark where it's still being cut up. He looks at these papers and he's just blown away. He realizes the papers he had been handed were, were um, different papers that had been concocted. 
And uh, so he immediately enters this into court just in the nick of time. And with the information that's in these papers, he was able to clearly demonstrate that this guy uh, was involved in smuggling. So here was a case where Captain Briggs thought that his misdeeds had been sunk to the bottom of the ocean, but God in his providence keeps that from happening. God in his providence opens it up and exposes it to the whole world. And the reason I say it's exposed to the whole world is because this was rather remarkable, so they put it in a museum, and people every day are looking at Captain Briggs' misdeeds in that museum. And God can do exactly the same things with us. He can make the things that you think you have shunted off to the side and that are private and nobody knows about to be shouted from the housetops. That's what Jesus says, because he loves you. He says that the misdeeds that are in secret, nobody knows about, will be shouted from the housetops. And that's what he did with King Saul. And really it was a blessing to be so confronted, but Saul did not make the most of it. He was sorry for his sins, but as we'll see, it was not enough. Now we're going to start by showing, first of all, five similarities between Saul's repentance and genuine God-given repentance. Very strong similarities here. And the first one is sorrow. Verse 16. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Saul's conscience brought him such inner pain that it led him to bitter tears. But sorrow by itself is not an evidence of saving faith. Judas, he wept bitter tears, didn't he, uh, over the misdeeds that he had engaged in. Uh, that Roman Catholic priest that was caught recently absconding, what was it, $850,000 from his parish? Uh, he didn't have any remorse over the years that he'd been absconding this money. But now he's got bitter tears over... Uh, that what he had uh, done there in in Matthew 8 verse 12 it says that there will be weeping in hell there have been American politicians who have been caught in sexual sins and once they're caught yeah they're they're weeping crocodile tears well maybe real tears who knows I guess I shouldn't say they're crocodile tears Jimmy Swaggart you know he's able to cry on TV and this is one of the chief examples in the scripture that sorrow by itself is not sufficient to qualify as full-blown biblical repentance. The second thing we see in Saul was that he was able to admit to evil. He was able to justify David's good deeds. He had a better repentance than some people who say, I'm sorry. Verse 17, Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. That's quite a public testimony to evil. I've done wrong. Looks pretty convincing. We've had a president who, uh, even though initially he, he justified his sin, you know, it depends on how you define is, uh, later on he makes a full confession to everyone without any excuses. And you might think, well, that's good. That's full-blown repentance, but it takes no grace whatsoever to confess your sins to people who already know that you have sinned. You know, in verse 17, Saul is not telling his 3,000 soldiers any, anything that they have not already just discovered. In fact, they're probably flabbergasted. They're stunned that they have been almost implicated in a crime, that they have been sent on an errand that was unconstitutional and that was immoral. 
And so what else is, is, is Saul to say, you know? He, it's quite obvious. Denying his implication, his guilt, would be as silly as saying, well, it depends on how you define is. It depends on how you define alone, okay? So Saul does what he has to do. He admits he did wrong. Do not think you're a hero in doing that. That is a part. It's an essential part of true repentance, but it can also be involved in counterfeit repentance. Third, Saul's counterfeit repentance was even able to recognize God's hand. Now, last week we saw that God was not very much in Saul's thoughts uh, in our, his day-to-day activities. He was driven, driven, driven by all of these temporal, worldly things. He was not driven from an eternal perspective. But even earth-driven people can be very religious. Take a look at verse 18. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. Now, he's exposing the fact that he believes in very good theology here. He believes in the providence of God dealing with everything in life that God himself had turned Saul over into David's hands. But counterfeit repentance can still acknowledge very, very good theology. Over the past 30 years, I have known pastors with the best of theology fall into adultery. And they've given what appears to be a genuine repentance, and a few days later, they're back in adultery again and justifying it. I've known pastors who have absconded funds. Uh, I've known pastors who, one pastor, he, he admitted that... Um, uh, he even had a good theology of divorce. He's divorcing his wife, and he's getting rebuked by the presbytery. And, and so he, he says, I know it's not biblical what I am doing, but he still justifies it anyway. He says, well, it's not God's perfect will, but it is God's permissive will. And so there's many of these repentances that you see out there, and at least some of them are not genuine repentances, even though they're accompanied by a good theology. You see, this demon that afflicted Saul was a religious spirit. Demons don't care how religious you become so long as you do not have genuine faith and genuine repentance. That's what they're trying to keep you from. By the way, those two are uh, flip sides of the same coin. Where you have genuine repentance, you're always going to have genuine faith. Okay, that you cannot separate them. If you have genuine faith, you're going to have genuine repentance. Verse 20, we see that Saul is able to agree to the path that should be. Now, this is another just amazing um, similarity to true repentance. He says, Now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. That's quite an admission. Well, when you study it a little bit deeper, maybe it's not quite an admission. Because his son Jonathan has been telling him for, what, two or three years already that he is not planning on inheriting the throne from his father. David's going to inherit the throne. Every time we hear Jonathan's voice, he has said that. And so maybe Saul resigns himself to the fact, yeah, David, I guess, is going to be king on the throne. But does he step down from the throne? No, he does not. He does not step down from the throne. He insists on staying on the throne. In fact, he forces David to swear that he's not going to kill him or any of his descendants. Okay? So it's a counterfeit repentance that simply has five similar characteristics. The fifth one is that it can turn from some evil to a certain degree. Verse 22 says that Saul went home. Well, that's a good thing. He doesn't kill 
David on this day. That's huge, isn't it? And some people would be satisfied with that repentance. That's all God requires, isn't it? And if that's as far as you go with your children, you are not driving them as deeply into God's grace as you should. And of course, we adults fall into the same error when we are willing to repent of peripheral evils, which are a little bit easier to repent of, but we still hold on to our throne, the very thing that God is calling us to destroy. In fact, the harder and the more painful and the more shameful God's call to repentance becomes, uh, the, the more desperately we're going to try to throw this repentance and that repentance out there to try to throw God and everybody else off of our tails and say, yeah, I am being spiritual, okay? In fact, in counseling, I see this all the time. People are willing to repent of anything and everything except for the precise thing that God is dealing with them on. They will not give up their throne. They will not let God on the throne. Why? Because it's so hard, You feel helpless. You feel, if I let God on the throne, what if he asked me to do something terribly uncomfortable? Okay, I won't kill David, but don't ask me to step down from the throne. That's a false repentance. And if you're a control freak who is willing to throw bones of repentance here and there so that you can stay on the throne and keep your control, all of those other repentances are fake. They are red herrings. You know what a red herring is, don't you? It's a rotten-smelling fish that a criminal will drag behind him because he knows the bloodhounds are going to smell his trail. He'll drag that behind him, take it off the trail, and then he'll backtrack and go off. And those bloodhounds, when they come, they're initially smelling for him. They smell this fish, and the, the fish smells so strong that they go off the track. And that's what people will do, and religious spirits will do within the church of Jesus Christ. They'll cause people to repent of this and the other thing, to take God's people off the scent of the real issues that they need to repent of in their lives. I'll repent of that thing. Just don't ask me to repent of this. In contrast, God-given repentance says, Lord, no matter how painful your call might be, I give you everything. I give you my life. If you want to take away my life, I'll give it to you. That's what some criminals are going to have to say if they're going to confess to their sins. They might lose their life. I will give you my reputation. I'll give it to you even if there is public exposure. I want to please you above everything else, above my comfort, above everything else. When you start to see things like that in people's lives, you know there is genuine repentance. So those are five ways in which counterfeit repentance looks similar to God-given repentance, but it does not go deep enough. Point three looks at the differences. Actually, uh, (laughs) I've been going through differences too, haven't I? Similarities and differences, but we're going to dig a little bit deeper into other differences between the two. First difference under Roman numeral three is that counterfeit repentance tends to arrive only when it has been publicly exposed or there is the threat of public exposure. We don't like that. Our pride doesn't like that. Verse 16 shows Saul repenting only after he had nowhere to run and the public already knows that what he was doing was wrong. Now, what does God-given repentance do? Well, it's God word in its its focus, isn't it? It's It's not human word. So if you're evaluating your children and you're saying, boy, I wonder if my children are ready for communion yet, this is one of the things that you can look at. Is their repentance a God, got a Godward focus or is it a parent word focus? Uh, and some of the ways you can tell is, do your children 
when they're on their knees before the Lord, confess to sins you didn't even know about? Are they softer on their knees before the Lord than they are when you are confronting them about their sins? Do they really have a desire to please the Lord? Is it spontaneous, uh, a, a, a willingness to, 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 to expose themselves before the Lord? If that's the case, then even though they've still got all kinds of struggles and sins, you can be encouraged that, that they've got the genuine work of God's Spirit within them. By the way, none of our repentances are going to be perfect. If you're looking for perfect repentance, forget it. You're never going to find it. We're always going to have some things. We're talking about focus here. What is the focus of our repentance? It may be just a little flame that's, that's beginning to grow in our lives, but is it focused where it should be? Second difference, soul's repentance, here is the rebuke of man much more strongly than the rebuke of God. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? So it's David's words and David's voice that Saul is struck with and even admits, hey, I sinned against you, David. But there's no hint whatsoever here or later that Saul has any recognition of the degree to which he has offended God. Okay, that's the issue. In contrast, what does Psalm 51 say? Psalm 51 says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And you read every verse in Psalm 51 and you will see it is a stark contrast with the self-centered focus of Saul's uh, repentance here. It is quite, quite different. So the characteristic, the second characteristic of true repentance is it's going to look like the sermon we talked about last week, pursuing God. Repentance is going to turn away from self and independence. It's going to run to the Lord. If you're staying in the doghouse, <laughs> okay, that, that's not what repentance does. Repentance always turns and it focuses on the Lord. Third difference, Saul's repentance kept centering around me rather than around God's glory. And so this is related to the, the previous point, and I want to see this in verse 18. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. He's saying, in effect, I appreciate the fact that you didn't kill me, that you let me off the hook, so to speak. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. Now we're going to be seeing under point E that both this verse and that verse are dealing with self-preservation in Saul's lives. But if you look at every point through the lens of, of point C, I think you're going to see a lot of me showing up. He weeps because of the pain that he feels, not because of the pain that he has caused God. How many times do people come to me for counseling because they want to get rid of the pain? In fact, there are books written that use this counterfeit repentance as a psychological tool to help people get rid of inward pain that they are experiencing. At almost every point, he is looking through the lens of how this will affect him. Well, if you've got that focus, you're only going to repent when it benefits you. You're going to have this cost-benefit ratio playing out in your mind, and you're going to be thinking, okay, in this particular case, I think it probably is going to pay off to repent. No, 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 that's not the way biblical repentance works. In Psalm 51, David is sorrowful, but what's he sorrowful over? He is so sorrowful that he has destroyed God's reputation. 
God's honor, God's glory. He is so sorrowful that he has caused a stumbling block to come in the way of sinners being converted and turning to the Lord. He is focused on what God despises and what pleases God. It's got a very God-centered focus. If your repentance is simply to get rid of your pain, it resembles Saul's repentance a whole lot more than it resembles David. If your repentance is concerned about maintaining your reputation rather than God's reputation, it's a counterfeit. And of course, that's all that our flesh can produce. It's a counterfeit repentance. See, the kind of repentance we need to be uh, interested in is what Acts speaks of as a God-granted repentance. I think it says something to the effect of, then has God granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. See, repentance is a work of God's grace. We don't repent properly by saying, okay, I guess I've got to cry harder, or I've got to beat up on myself harder, or I've got to do this, or I've got to do the other thing. No, repentance has got a Godward focus. It's focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. God-centered, cross-centered. Point D shows another difference. Saul's repentance still has a little bit of accusation in it. Take a look at verse 19. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Now he is amazed that David, his enemy, has not killed him, but he's assuming that David sees him as as an enemy. Now if you've read the previous chapters, you know David has not done this. He calls him his friend. He wants to be reconciled with with Saul. He's done everything he could to please uh, Saul. So Saul here is blind to it. He does acknowledge David has done some good things in this verse here, but he does it in a backhanded way. It's almost a self-justification. It's sort of like, well, yeah, I, I did wrong on this, but you guys need to realize that that's the way you deal with enemies, isn't it? And David is my enemy. And so even though in some ways he's justifying David, it's in a backhanded kind of a way. At the very time he's repenting, he's going on the attack. And of course, in the later verses, he goes more on the attack, especially verse 21. It's almost like a, a threat here. You better swear that you're not going to do anything to my kids. So he's going on the attack. And of course, we see this all the time too, don't we? People aren't comfortable to admitting to wrong unless they can also point out wrong in the other person. It just happens all the time. Yeah, I'm sorry for doing that, but... And then you go on to explain why I couldn't really help it because that person was being such a jerk. You don't find that at all in David's confession, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, any of the confessions of David. You don't find it. He doesn't say, please forgive me for doing such and such, but no. He owns up to his own sin, leaves the conviction of the other person to God. And so if you cannot repent without throwing barbs at the other person, it's uh, very, very likely that it's not a God-granted repentance. It is a repentance that still stinks of self-justification. Now, if you have to paint others as bad so that you don't feel bad, admitting to your badness, you've missed the whole point of grace. (laughs) You know, grace causes us to be so overwhelmed with our own badness and with God's goodness that when God calls upon us to repent of our sins, we don't feel bad thinking, oh, they're going to think I'm bad. No! God's grace is so at work in our hearts we confess that, and, and if they, they think that we're bad, we think, oh, well, <laughs> I'm a thousand times worse than even, they even realize that I am. Okay, so th- we realize we're all bad, 
And yet we're all good in God's grace, in his justification. That's the way that we look at these things. And so people have trouble with confessions because they still think of themselves as mostly good. And they're embarrassed that somebody else has found a little bit of bad in me. They're really embarrassed over that. The demon that is in Saul had let Saul have at least a smidgen of self-respect, but it shows a lack of grace. It shows a complete misunderstanding of what grace is all about. Point E, Saul is still preoccupied with self-preservation. Now, we've already seen that in the previous verses, but I think it's stated so well in verse 19. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Now, he's very appreciative of the fact that, that David has spared his life, and it makes him want to back away from his own sin temporarily. But what was at the heart of Saul's desire to kill David in the first place? We've already seen it was self-preservation. What's at the heart of his confession here? It's self-preservation. What's at the heart of his refusal to step down from the throne? It's self-preservation. Okay, he's not had a change of heart. His heart is just manifesting itself in different ways, depending on the circumstances. And that is especially seen in verse 20, when Saul shows no inkling that he has to give full restitution. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Now, there is a mental acknowledgement that David should be on the throne. But does he step down from the throne? No. His will is not engaged. Just like faith involves the mind, the emotions, and the will, repentance involves the mind, the affections, and the will. Uh, remorse is being sorry mentally. Excuse me. Um, yeah, remorse is, is emotionally. Regret is being so sorry mentally. Remorse is being sorry mentally and emotionally. But repentance is a complete turning away from our rebellion mentally, emotionally, as well as volitionally. Like the tax collector Matthew who did what? As soon as he repents, he leaves his profession and he follows after Jesus. So stepping down from his throne would be the logical implication of this confession. If he had received a God-given repentance, it would have resulted in restitution. He would have said, David... I have sinned. I shouldn't even be on the throne. I'm stepping down from the throne. You are the rightful heir to the throne, and it would be an honor for me if you would let me be one of your captains or one of your generals, but I am stepping down from the throne. And too often, Christians are willing to give the words, I repent, please forgive me, without showing what the Gospels call the fruits of repentance. What are the fruits of repentance? They're restitution. Jay Adams tells the story of a lady in California that he knew who had been ripped off of her entire life savings by two young men who said that they were investing her money, but they were really just spending it. She confronted them, and they were Christians too. She confronted them, said that she was going to take them to the, 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 you know, the uh, church court, to, to the session, if they did not give her her money back. And they said, well, please forgive us. We should not have done that. And she says, okay, I forgive you. Now can I have my money? <laughs> and they said, no, now that you've forgiven us, we don't have to give you your money back. Well, they had just stolen from her a second time, haven't they? They've asked for forgiveness, and if there's genuine repentance, there's always going to be restitution. But by the fact that they're not giving the money back, they've stolen from her a second time. Where there was no restitution or desire for restitution, 
there is an evidence that it's not genuine. Now, let me illustrate this on a kid level. I think it was about 12 years ago, I read an article that was explaining how parents can tell if their children are ready for communion or not. How, how can you see if there's faith in God, if there's repentance, and again, flip sides of the same coin. And in this one section of the article, they were just dealing with uh, repentance. And, and he said, you know, his, his wife had walked in on their son, and their son had been sprinkling baby powder all over the living room floor. It was an incredible mess. I don't know how many of you tried to clean up baby powder. You can clean it and clean it and clean it, and there still seems like there's baby powder on the floor. So she walks in in all this mess, and she loses it. She gets very, very upset and chews her son out and then leaves the room and goes get some cleaning supplies and comes back in. In the meantime, this kid has made the matter even worse by pouring water all over the floor and and helplessly trying to rub this around with rag, round and round and round, and the, you know, not able to pick up this stuff. Well, she's tempted to even blow up more and get really angry, and the Spirit of God convicted her and said, you know what? He's trying to do restitution. And, and this child, in his clumsy way, was trying to fix the problem. That's a kind of restitution that is going on there. And she realized, okay, I can see little em embers of God's grace here. So she gets down on her knees and she helps him to clean that mess up uh, with the two of them together. And the restitution that you see in your spouse may be awkward, it may be clumsy, and it may make you just want to get mad at your spouse for the clumsiness of their restitution. Don't do that. Take the way of the cross and say, praise God, you know, that there's embers here. I'm going to blow and fan that little flame and, and try to encourage it rather than stomping out that flame because this person's being so clumsy. We need to be gracious with each other. When we see God's grace at work in each other's repentances, let's thank God for it, let's fan the flames, and let's see God's grace continue to move on. Now, there's just two more contrasts I want to make. In verse 21, we see that Saul's repentance was driven by fear rather than faith. And what does Romans 14 say? It says, whatever is not of faith is sin. If you've got a repentance without faith, it's a sinful repentance. Why? Because faith and repentance are flip sides of the same coin. It's not a God-given repentance. Okay, so verse 21. Therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. Now, he's not even in a position to be making demands like this. It's just, how can he do this? Well, he can do it because he's got 3,000 soldiers to force a concession like that from David, but, but he really does not have a moral position uh, to be doing that. But what you see here is Saul's self-preservation kicking into high gear. I will stop trying to kill you if you will do such and such. It's fear that drives this, not faith. Faith would just confess his sins, step down from the throne, and leave the results in God's hand. But Saul is so driven from fear of what might happen to him if he steps down from the throne that he cannot bring himself to have an unconditional repentance. What if David takes advantage of me? I think you can see what's going on in that. And this is what happens so frequently within the church of Jesus Christ. I will repent, I'll do my part if that other person repents. Brothers and sisters, a repentance that flows from faith is a repentance that trusts God enough to say, 
look, I will repent even if that other person uses my repentance against me. I will repent even if it puts me into a vulnerable position. I will repent even if I'm scared to death about the results of my repentance. Why? Because I want to please God. He is the one that's uppermost in my mind. And you just trust God with the results. It's a repentance that has faith to trust God. Can you see that? Now, it doesn't mean everything's going to turn out well. God will sometimes test us. Are you going to continue to repent with a faithful repentance? And so God may make it that you lose your job. You know, some people have not. In fact, many times God blesses us when we repent. But there may come a time where you repent and it backfires. No, it didn't backfire because you've pleased God. Your attitude should be, Lord, I don't care what the results of my repentance are. I want to please you. I am not going to be clinging to my honor, my position, my finances, whatever it is else that you cling on to. I'm clinging to you, Lord. And like I said earlier, true repentance, true faith, flip sides of the same coin. If you read Psalm 51, you read Psalm 38 and the other confessions of David, you're going to see this faith in God, trusting God as, they rep as he repents fully. So if your repentance does not drive you instantly to the Lord in faith, it's not a God-granted repentance. What it is really, probably, it's Satan accusing you and beating up on you. He didn't want you, dry, he didn't want you running to the Lord. He just wants you to make, feel, make you feel bad, right? So he'll, he'll beat up on you. The last contrast that we see is that Saul's repentance did not result in reconciliation. Verse 22. So David swore to Saul. That's a one-way street. Saul's not doing any swearing to David. It didn't bring reconciliation. It says, so David swore to Saul, and Saul went home. What's with that? And it says, David and his men went to the stronghold. They parted ways. There was no reconciliation, and there can be no full reconciliation when there's not true repentance. I'm sorry, always falls short. And while we're talking about reconciliation, it should point out that reconciliation cannot occur when true repentance is not received with true forgiveness. Okay? David was willing to forgive Saul if he repented, but Saul did not. Elizabeth Barrett was a famous poet. You probably know her husband a little bit better. She, uh, she married uh, Robert Browning, but her parents disowned her when she married him because they disapproved of the, the wedding. But she continued every week to write a love letter to them, expressing her love and her desire to be reconciled. And after 10 years of doing that, she received this huge box in the mail filled with her letters, and not one of those letters had been opened up. Just, it, just uh, horrible to think about. Now, this is, this is a, a classic collection in English literature, her, her love poetry, but it's just sad when you think about it. If they had even opened up one of those, maybe they would have an inkling of her desire to be reconciled. Maybe they would have opened their hearts, but maybe not. Bitterness can do strange things uh, to people. So reconciliation uh, takes not only God-given repentance, but also God-given forgiveness. And my closing admonition to each of you is to not allow pride to keep you from full repentance over your own sins and to not allow pride to keep you from full forgiveness, unconditional forgiveness and reconciliation. Your temptation is to want to make that other person suffer just a little bit. 
because after all, I've suffered from their behavior for quite a while. You want them to suffer? Don't do that. You've got to walk the way of the cross. And David had it in his heart to do this. And if you read his tribute toward Saul at the end of his life, and there's other tributes too that he made toward Saul, what an incredible eulogy that he made. You realize David was an Elizabeth Barrett. He wanted reconciliation. That was his heart's desire. The title of this sermon is that sorry is not enough. It's not enough in our human relationships, and it's not enough in our relationship to God, because all sorry means is I'm sad. I feel bad. Well, yeah, okay, but that doesn't go far enough. It doesn't take steps toward restoration. True repentance turns around from rebellion and runs into the arms of Jesus. So turning around, that's repentance. By itself, that's not enough. Turning around is repentance. Running into the arms of Jesus is faith. And so true repentance does not stand there beating up on yourself endlessly, being in the doghouse. No, it instantly runs to the Lord. You must tell the Lord you renounce self-trust, self-pursuit, and independence, and you want to turn to Him and trust Him for His provision. Another way of saying this is that genuine repentance turns around and it leads us to faith. That's just another way of saying it. And then lastly, saying it's okay is not enough. Sin is never okay. Don't, when somebody asks you, please forgive me, don't say, it's okay, it's okay. Sin is never okay. God never has said that sin is okay. What God has said is, I hate your sin enough to send my son to die in your place, but I love you enough that I'm going to forgive you and forget about this, not bring it to my memory anymore for the sake of Jesus. That's what true forgiveness is all about. It does not minimize sin. David in no way minimized Saul's sin in this chapter. Yes, he was willing to forgive, but he did not minimize the sin that was there. And really it was a kindness from David's lips, but it was rejected. David showed a heart that was immediately willing to forgive, to be reconciled. And God calls us to be a church full of people who are willing to put away the soul syndrome and to become David's and uh, Elizabeth Barrett's who pursue reconciliation. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father God, when we consider Your Word week after week, we realize that apart from Your grace, we cannot live Your Word. And so we ask for the empowering of Your Holy Spirit to take Your Word and to transform us through it, to give us faith to repent properly. And Father, to give us faith to walk in Your precepts, to give us faith to love each other unconditionally, to give us faith to trust You with the results of, of, of doing just what You say. Father, I pray that You would transform us from glory to glory, from faith to faith, from strength to strength by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Turn us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be sure to give You all of the praise and the honor and the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.